Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Our text this morning brings us to a topic, an issue that while we speak to it in the various ministries of our church, I don't on a you know, very regular rhythmic basis, talk about this a lot from the stage. There's no particular reason for it. It's just as the text takes us, we respond. And today we are looking at the topics of marriage and sexuality. And that's because we're studying the Ten Commandments and we're finding what is the heart of God in the law of God? What is it that God really cares about? Why does he give the Ten Commandments or any of his law for his people to follow? And this morning we've made our way to the Seventh Commandment. And do you know what the Seventh Commandment is? Yeah, you shall not commit adultery. And today we're going to dig in and try to understand what is the meaning. Why, did, why is this one of the ten things that was on God's heart when he brought his people out of Egypt? And he said, this is a really big deal to me. Why is it a commandment? What does it mean? What are the applications of it? But before we dig in, there's a couple of things I want to say up front. Number one, um, obviously this will be a PG-13 sermon. And so... If you have kids in the room, that's great. They are so welcome here. But I just want to say to you as your pastor, it's a really good time to practice faithful discipleship in the home and to follow up with the things that we talk about. I think it's good that they're here because they're hearing about it out there quite a bit. And so it's important for you to take the things that we're learning from God's word and to continue to to faithfully follow up with them and to help them to understand God's heart in this subject matter. And if you're here and you're going, I don't know, this may not be the day, I want to let you, want you to know we have an awesome kids ministry and there's like 90 kids plus over there worshiping Jesus and learning about Jesus today. Jamie, I see her is right at this door with our kids ministry staff and you can right now take them to her and she'll just check them in and you're good to go. So you're, you're welcome and free to do that. But I wanted up front just to be clear, I let our online people know this morning that as well. Um, it's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing is, as the commandment says, you shall not commit adultery. Um, the, I guess, simplest and most common uh, description or definition of what that means is uh, marital infidelity is what God is talking about. And he is, make no mistake, that's very much a massive uh, concept that, that the Lord is trying to get across to his people through you shall not commit adultery. But I think that the way we have understood that may be a little too simple. I think it's, it's more than that, or maybe not more, maybe it's deeper than that or more comprehensive than that, and we'll see that this morning. And so we will be talking about things that are, are very personal, deeply personal and intimate, and maybe complicated for you because of the kinds of experiences we may have had throughout our life. And so as always, but maybe specifically and especially today, it's so important that we move forward in an air and an atmosphere of grace. And that should always be true. But especially today, considering the kinds of experiences that that we may have had throughout our life. And Jesus is our example for walking in grace, even in in difficult, complex issues. You you might be surprised when you read through the Gospels, if you haven't just like sat and read from beginning to end in a while, you might be surprised how many individuals that Jesus met and befriended and even transformed by his love and grace were people who had very disordered sexual lives. Go back and read or go back and think about it. And you go, man, this is here a lot. Which is a very good reminder to us that this isn't just like a current, present day cultural thing. But this is a thing for all time that people have struggled in understanding and dealing with. How does God want us to view and treat sexuality? 
And one of those examples I want to share with you this morning is from John chapter 8. And you may remember the story where Jesus is teaching some people. And as he's teaching, some Pharisees and scribes bring a woman into the room and interrupt his teaching and throw her down at, at his feet and say, this woman was caught in adultery. This morning she was caught in the very act of adultery. And Moses' law says that we should stone her. We should throw rocks at her and beat her up or kill her by stoning her. What do you say? And you may remember in the story, Jesus kind of kneels down for a minute. He's kind of playing in the dirt. And they kept persisting. They kept pushing the issue. They're, they're, they're trying, verse 6 says, they're trying to find him act in a way that's not according with their interpretation of God's law so they can accuse him of wrongdoing. And they keep pushing. So Jesus stands up and he looks at him and says, okay, boys, whoever among you has not sinned, who does not struggle with sin, Go ahead and pick up rocks. You can be the first one to throw. And then he kneels back down and he begins kind of messing in the dirt again. The Bible tells us that one by one, each of these who had come as accusers to condemn this woman began to leave. And it's interesting to note that it says one by one from oldest down to youngest they left. I think it's a good reminder that so often for us, it's harder when we're younger to accept and to live in the reality of the struggles that we have and to embrace the tough lessons in life. Just a side note there. But one by one, they, they each leave until Jesus is the only one with the woman. And he's there by right because he's the only one who has not sinned, right? He's the only one who has the right to actually pick up stones and, and, and throw them at her. And Jesus looks to the woman and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who intended to condemn you this day? And she looks at him and says, Lord, there are none left. And Jesus looks at her and says, well, I don't condemn you either. Now go and don't sin anymore. And it's an amazing moment. It's an amazing story. And there's a couple of lessons that I just I want to highlight before we get back into the Ten Commandments this morning. First lesson in that story is that we are all broken sexually in one way or another. We're all struggling in one way or another. These men brought this woman and threw her down. She had been caught that very morning in the act of adultery. We don't know the exact details of what was going on, but it certainly in their minds constituted breaking the act of adultery. They threw her down at his feet. And Jesus, when he put it to them, all of them walked away with their heads hanging that they struggled with sin of some sort. Maybe a secret sin of some sort. And I love this quote from Ray Ortland. He said, and he, he wrote this in a book, and he also put it on, on Twitter, and man, did it get a lot, of, a lot of love and a lot of hate, both, as you might expect. He said, I am a sexual sinner. I'm faithful to my wife, not looking at porn, and I am a sexual sinner. I love this idea. Listen, if sin were blue, then everything about me at all levels all the time would have at least a tinge of blue to it, including my sexuality. Same for you. So can we all humble ourselves? That's the attitude that we need. We need all the time, and we need, we need this morning as we approach this. If you're breathing and your blood is pumping, you're not perfect. We all fall short, and we all really desperately need God's grace in every area and aspect of our life. That's the first point that, that I want to make from that story, is that we're all broken. We're all struggling with sin in some way, and most likely we're all, at some point, if not today, are dealing with some kind of struggle with sexual sin. Second point is that Jesus delights in forgiving sexual sin. 
What did, he, what did he say to this woman here in verse 11? He says, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. In other words, Jesus says, they were shaming you, but I'm forgiving you. They were marginalizing you. They were scrutinizing you. They were stigmatizing you, but I'm dignifying you. They were throwing you down, but I am lifting you up. I'm welcoming you into a new life with the words, I don't condemn you. Go, sin no more. Right? Jesus delights in forgiving sexual sin and all brokenness. And, and the tone and the nature of the way he speaks to this woman just really depicts what we learn in Romans 2, that it is his kindness which leads us to true repentance. Isn't that right? Man, it's not the harsh lessons, it's not the spankings that cause us to go, oh, my heart wants to change. It's the deep kindness that is intrinsic to the very nature of of who God is, which leads us to true repentance. And it's a reminder of Romans 8 that just keeps coming back to us and the best kind of haunting ever all year that says to us over and over again that those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And this is the truth of the gospel that is, it travels with us in everything that we, we do and see as the people of God, as the people of Jesus. It's the lens through which we see everything in life. And so this morning, even as we approach the seventh commandment, I want you to remember this, that we're all in some way broken and struggling with sin, probably dealing with some kind of sin related to sexuality. But our Savior, our Savior delights. He's tender and compassionate and delights in forgiving sexual sin. Isn't that good news? It is good news this morning. And I want us to move forward in that good news and the hope that it brings that there is more grace to be found in Jesus than there is sin to be found in you and me and all of the people who have ever breathed and lived on the face of this earth for all time. That is absolutely amazing news. So as we come back to the Ten Commandments, I want to kind of catch you up and remind you what I've been arguing is that God's heart in His law mostly is about human flourishing by His grace and for His glory. And that's the best way that I can summarize what we've been trying to say for the last, we're in week seven, for the last six weeks. If I could sum it up, we're just saying God in the giving of His law desires human flourishing, not to oppress but to lift up and to give life to those by His grace and for his glory. We're learning what it looks like to really live, to really live, right? Not with blinders on, not reduced lives, not oppressed lives, but to be freed and to walk in life in the way that God intended us for. We're learning that those who God sets free, just as he did here in Israel, bringing them out of over 400 years of slavery in Egypt, but it wasn't just slavery, it was ethnic and social and economic and and spiritual bondage, bondage of every sort as he rescued them and set them free. He wants them to know how to walk in freedom, just as Jesus sets us free from bondage to sin, from from living lives apart from God, as as Jesus saves us from that, to those whom he saves, he gives his commandments that we might experience, we might continue in that freedom, we might walk in his grace, that we would learn by his law how to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and how we would love our neighbor. That's what it's there for. And the seventh commandment is all about this. It's a very big part of this, of both loving the Lord your God and also loving your neighbor. It's about loving God 
in worshiping him as God and loving and trusting that his plan for life, his plan for marriage, his plan for sex is good. It's good for you. It's good for society. And it's, it's been given that there would be something that is abundant to be experienced in it. It's about that, but it's also about living a life that loves your neighbor and doesn't treat them in such ways that it brings devastation and destruction to social relationships on the earth. And there's some deeper things even to it that we're going to see here this morning. And I wish... I wish, like the, it seems simple, but the applications are so expansive. I wish I could spend an hour or two talking to you this morning about the biblical ethics of marriage and sexuality. In fact, like I, I did. I mean, I had, a, I had my sermon's already been cut by 50%, and we may go a few minutes long. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. And, and I didn't expect that you would stay for all of that. So all I really think that I can accomplish today is to help us to focus on what is the heart of God in the seventh commandment in the law of God. Why is this a law? And to understand some framework for what is God's design for sex according to the Bible because the Bible isn't silent about it. In fact, the guy, the Bible isn't shy at all. We find that, that sex was a part of God's design from the beginning. He designed us, every human, with the physical, emotional, social, and even spiritual capacity for sexuality, to desire it, to experience it. And the physical union between husband and wife was God's idea. He thought it up in the, in the first place. Adam and Eve didn't go, what should we do? I don't know, what's this? No, God said, there is a plan for this. And it's here in Genesis 2. It's a part of the goodness of his creation. The husband should cling, cleave to his wife and the two shall become one, right? Genesis 2 says the first husband and the first wife, they shall become one flesh. This is God's idea. And then we're told that the first husband and the first wife, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. And that's a reminder to us that before the fall, before sin, sex was given as a gift from God to husband and wife. Something to seal and to strengthen the bond of their unity, of their commitment and devotion to each other, of their, their bond and of their peace together. It was good. It was very good, and it seems that the first husband and wife, that they engaged in it without any inhibitions. It, it says they were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Just pause there for a second. That's remarkable. Because we think about how much shame and guilt and confusion and hurt and pain and fear travels. It seems like all of humanity, when it comes to our our experiences with and our thoughts about sexuality, which makes it clear that sex, just like everything else in life, that sex was affected by the fall, right? That we, we fall short of the glory of God that affects every area of our life, that sex in a broken world falls short of the glory of God and needs his redemption and restoration. It needs him. And yet you find in the Bible that, that from the beginning to the end, there is no canceling sex in the Bible, but instead it holds it up. And it begins to, or it continues to, from the fall forward, continues to, to teach and point towards God's design for sex and what a powerful force for good God intended it to be. In fact, and I'll just give you a few passages to look up this week because we don't have time for all of this, but the Bible does even celebrate sexual acts of love as God designed between a husband and wife in marriage as something to take delight in. Here's one of those verses, Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Go spend time with this, this week and ask God to help you just to understand 
Like what beauty and joy that he's inviting people into in a married relationship. It says that there should be a celebration, a rejoicing that can take place in the physical and emotional union of sex between a husband and a wife. It can be there for you, is what Proverbs 5 says. Go read Song of Solomon, like all of it. It's this beautiful poetic expression and you're sometimes going, did he just say what I thought he said? Because no, he can't have said that. And you go, yes, I think he did say that, in fact. And it's all about, listen, through this lens, it's all about exclusivity and permanence when you read the Song of Solomon. It's about exclusivity, like there is none like you. You're the apple of my eye. No one can hold a candle to you. And it's much better poetry than that. I just am, you know, working here off the cuff. And it's about permanence. No one will ever, baby, you know, hold a torch to you. And that's my translation of the original Hebrew. (laughs) But it's about exclusivity and permanence, and there's reason for that, and we'll dig more into that this morning. And then one more passage you might look up, and there's so many, but one more that I think is really vital to this conversation is Hebrews 13.4. This is the marriage covenant should be held in honor. It's called a covenant. It's not a contract between two people. It's not a civil union. It's covenantal, which means God is in the center of it, and he has made marriage sacred, Right? And so it says for that reason, the marriage covenant should be held in honor and the marriage bed should be undefiled. It should be pure. It should not be, should not be treated lightly. It should be treated with much attention and care. That's, it's the Bible. It has a lot to say on, on this. And when we, we come to these passages, what we get is a picture that sex for us is not just about biology, which is a very different way of thinking about it than a lot of the world thinks about sex. It's not just about biology. In fact, there's something transcendent about sex for us. There's even a very close connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. And I want you to to see this picture. The union between husband and wife is intended. It was purposed by God to speak not just to the exclusivity and the permanence between a husband and wife that he intended, but it's meant to represent and be a portrait of the exclusivity and the permanence between God and his people. Do you understand that? God always intended that picture to be, to be held within the, the, the portrait of marriage. So why is sex only for marriage? I'll give you three reasons real quick. One, because the consummation of marriage, there is a complete fusion of persons. I don't want to get graphic, but two become one. That's a part of it. So keep that in mind. It is a fusion of two persons. Remember Galatians 2.20 says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, Right? Remember the Holy Spirit, you're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, you're a temple of the living God, yeah? One reason is because there's a fusion of persons. The second reason is because there's exclusivity. There's exclusivity. I'm married to this person, this person is my wife. It's not me in a bunch, at least according to God, it's not intended to be. It's me and my covenant spouse. And you see that picture too throughout the Bible. God says, you are my people, a holy nation, a chosen people, a, a, a nation of, of priests, right? You're my people and I am your God. Exclusivity. And then a third reason, because there's unconditional acceptance in sex and marriage. It's really a bearing, not just of your body, but of your soul saying, do you accept me? Yes, I do. And it's a reminder and a promise. It's an act that says you are accepted here. And that is, that is the gospel again and again and again, that there's nothing that I could do to be accepted by God, but Christ came to earth, lived a perfect life, a sinless life, took on the penalty of my sin and said, you can't earn your way to God, just turn to me. I accept you just as you are. I fully accept you just as you are. You see that? Do you, do you see what God is trying to teach us through the design of marriage 
and sex and marriage, right? God is demonstrating the most important thing that any human could ever know. That's why in the Old Testament, Israel is called the, being married to God, the bride of God. And in the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. It's not just a human thing. It's not just a civil thing. It's a thing that is uniquely and purposely entwined with the deepest spiritual realities of life. Phil Riken in his commentary said this. He said, when you reduce sex to just biology or just a good time, you dehumanize us. You reduce us to the level of animals. You take the mystery and the glory that God put into us and you rob us of it. As Christians, we're called to purity not because we're sexually repressed people, but because we are unwilling to settle for illicit pleasures that rob the joy and satisfaction God desires for us in marital intercourse. That's good. And that's why adultery is forbidden. Not because sex is bad or, or, or anything like that, but because God intended it for, to be a powerful force for good in a relationship and to stand for an even deeper relationship. To seal and to strengthen the marriage covenant, which is the picture and the portrait of the covenant God makes with his people. And so it's a powerful gift. It's a gift not to, sh to, to um, satisfy, to gratify selfish urges. It's a gift given to love your neighbor, your spouse, your covenant spouse in such a way that it assures, it affirms, it protects, it repeats. It's just you and me. And it's you and me forever. And I accept you. And I protect you. And I stand with you. And you will not be alone. Now, I want you to hear this. Um, sex is a gift, it's a good gift, but it's not ultimate. You hear that? Our culture makes it the ultimate. Culture in the world makes it the pinnacle of all things, but it, it is not ultimate. You can live a, a full and blessed and rich and meaningful life without ever being married and without ever having sex. You, you want an example of someone who did that? It's church, so I'll give somebody give me the answer. Yeah, Jesus never married. Jesus never had sex, and yet, I mean, he has the richest, most meaningful, powerful life ever lived as a human on this earth. And I, Sam Elberry, I didn't know if I'd share this or not, but I, just, I want to. It's from one of his books. This is potent. He said, Jesus is the most complete and fully human person who ever lived. So his not being married is not incidental, okay, it shows us that none of these things, marriage, romantic fulfillment, sexual experience, is intrinsic to being fully human. The moment we say otherwise, the moment we claim a life of celibacy or not being married is dehumanizing, we are implying that Jesus himself is only subhuman. Yeah. So it's good. It's a powerful force for good in the marriage covenant, but it's not ultimate. It's not something that has to be. Marriage and sex is not something that has to be to have experienced the rich and full life. Now, I don't know if any of you are reading the, the Ten Words by Jen Wilkin. It's the book we've been you know, pushing in the bookstore out there. It's a quick book. It gets to the heart of things. And I love what she said in, in her chapter on this. She said, Jesus will teach us that there is a deeper obedience to be sought, one that surpasses simply not sleeping with someone we are not married to. So that's what I want to look at now and, and have you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. How did Jesus interpret the seventh commandment? How did Jesus teach 
the seventh commandment? How does he create a framework for it for those who know and, and follow him? So Matthew 5, uh, Jesus will quote the seventh commandment and then he will interpret and teach it to those who are gathered around him. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, it's that Matthew 5 through 7 section, um, and Jesus is sitting on a hillside in Galilee, and they're gathered, you might imagine it, like, like concentric circles. I don't know what it really looked like, but we know that his disciples were with him, and he was so often, they were crowded close to him, and he would be speaking to them, and at times in the Sermon on the Mount, you get the sense that he's really speaking just to them, though others may hear. They are closely surrounding him. And we know that he was so often followed by Pharisees and by religious leaders who were wanting to hear what he had to say and so often with, with the idea of if we could get him to say something that we could use to take him out or to undermine who he is in his ministry. So they would have been there and then we're told that crowds of people were gathered to hear his teaching. And there might have been a grand game of telephone going on where the people in the front could hear and begin passing it on to the back and you just hope the people in the back understood what was said at the front and thank God we have some people who sat at the front who then wrote down what Jesus did say. And this is called the Sermon on the Mount. And when we get to chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says to his disciples and the religious leaders in the crowd, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Where'd they hear that? They heard that in Exodus 20, verse 14, right? You have heard this before. It's not new to you. Don't commit adultery. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with what? with lust for her or with lustful intent has already has already committed adultery with her in his heart you have heard that it was said when people heard the seventh commandment they begin to interpret the, the seventh commandment immediately that is it a physical action that is called adultery, that it is something that is done with the body, it is something simply done with the hands. But what Jesus is saying is that before it even gets to your hands, it's something that starts in your heart. Do you follow Jesus' words there? Before there's an adultery of the hands, there's an adultery of the heart. And we know this. We don't have to like philosophically decide, do I agree with this? Because we know that sexual act and we know that adulterous relationships don't start with sex. They start with misplaced desires with relationships that get close and get intimate uh, over time and in a way. They start with a look. They start with an approach. They start with, with desire being reached out and acted upon. It doesn't start just with sex. You build up to that. It starts with adulterous hearts. And so what Jesus is, is talking about is a sexual purity that isn't simply outward and the things that you do with your body, but he's talking about a sexual purity that consumes the mind and, and the heart, that there's an inward direction of this. In fact, his language, if you look at it, he says, anyone, anyone who has lust uh, or lustful desire for someone who isn't your spouse has already, has already committed adultery, that there's a mental adultery. He says, this is adultery, and that makes a person already guilty. Goodness. I think about the story of David and Bathsheba in the Old Testament. That means when way before David ever acted in a, a physical sexual relationship with Bathsheba, way before it ever got to that, he had already committed adultery. He was already guilty. Before he ever sent a person to go and get her and bring her to him, he had already committed adultery. In fact, not just adultery, but he had already uh, worked out the 10th commandment, which we're not even to yet, but he was coveting his neighbor's wife. Not only was he doing that, but I mean, he was stealing the life 
from his neighbor and from her and the future that they had planned in so many ways. He was bearing false witness. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. He was lying about his sins and hiding his sins. He's supposed to be David, a man after God's own heart, but he's bearing his name in vain because he sure isn't, isn't you know, representing God in a faithful way, a way full of integrity. He's emptied God's name of worth and meaning and glory by his actions, the, the way he's carrying himself out. But this didn't start simply with a a look with noticing her bathing on her roof, it was a look that turned into a leer that began to unleash an adulterous heart that made him guilty. He was already guilty. And the path that it set him on led him to destruction in their family. We've covered most of the commandments, but how about the sixth commandment that, that Brandon talked about last week? He set the course to set the plan for her husband's destruction to have Uriah killed and so here, here's why I think the command is given in the first place and why Jesus says it doesn't just start with the actions, it starts with the heart. It's because when David's sexual desire was left unchecked, it gradually consumed his heart and it commanded his devotion and attention in a way that God himself didn't have David's heart in that moment. He, like so many people do and make a habit of in our lives, he made sex an idol in his life that he was willing to sacrifice for. And then he lived a life that led to destruction of others. He didn't love the Lord his God, and he didn't love his neighbor as himself. Do you see that? And so what, what, what Jesus has done in the Sermon on the Mount here is he's elevated our concept of sexuality from something we just do with our bodies, something that we just do with our hands, and something that he assures us is deeply a matter of the soul, and it's a matter of the heart. It is for us more than biology, Jesus says, a lustful intent, a lustful desire set upon someone who is not your spouse is already dangerously sinful. Don't look past it, don't look over it, don't dismiss it and think that's no big deal. He says, no, that, that already is destroying you. It already is making you guilty. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees when he said, your, your lips, you honor me, but with your hearts, you are far from me. Do you remember that? He went on to his disciples to describe, what, is, what do I mean by that? What does that look like? He says, that which flows out of the heart, that's where the guilt begins. That's where the evil starts. He says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile, those are already defiling us from the inside out. Verse 19, out of the heart proceeds, proceeds evil thoughts and murders. That's the sixth command, if you're taking notes. Adulteries and fornications, that's the seventh command. Thefts, that's the eighth command. False witness, that's the ninth command. And blasphemies, that's the third commandment, right? And so already in our hearts, What's going on left unchecked in our hearts works its way out. It's already evil bubbling within us. There's already sin at work trying to destroy us. Even before it comes out and begins to destroy others, it's already killing us, eating us from the inside out. That's why sin is, is, is cancerous. That's why it doesn't start in one area, but it spreads so often. That's why with David, it wasn't just a look that became a leer that unleashed an adulterous heart and stayed in the realm of sexuality. No, it ruined his life. It, it broke the covenant that he had with the Lord. It broke the covenant he had with the people as a holy king for the people. You get that? That's why the Bible warns us and encourages us to, above all else, guard our hearts. And so often to go to God and ask God to purify my heart, cleanse my heart, God. See what is in within me. Burn away that which kills because according to Jesus, what lies in our hearts that is adulterous is adultery. It just is. 
It's not pre-adultery. It's not like, you know, on the way to adultery. It is adultery. And that means that there's not an adult anywhere that can escape Jesus' words in the seventh commandment. Like, we can't go, e you know what? I think about the Ten Commandments and the, the Fourth Commandment is the one I struggle with. I don't, I'm so busy I don't rest a lot. But the Seventh, I got that one. I never, never, never have broken the Seventh Commandment. If you look at it the way that Jesus, who is God, looks at it. Jesus who saves. Jesus who we say we worship and adore and have been given life by. You go, oh, well, no. No, every one of us is broken sexually in, in some way. And you begin to go through the rubric and through the things you've done and experienced in your life, the things that you've seen and heard in your life, and you go, well, just fantasizing about someone who's not my spouse, does that count as, I mean, it doesn't feel like that hurts anybody. Does that count as, as heart adultery? According to Jesus, yes, right? You go, well, what about pornography? Is pornography heart adultery? And I'm not talking just about websites that have the word porn in them. I mean like social media and all media in general that is there to stimulate and to start our adulterous hearts to get the motor running. Is, is pouring myself into that considered hard adultery? Absolutely it is. And it's like we can't turn left or right without seeing it thrown in our faces. And the thing that we should be mourning, it seems like we're celebrating over and over again. It doesn't break our hearts. It stimulates our hearts. The problem is... We like to look, for some reason we like to play with fire. Okay, what about emotional affairs? I hear people use this language. What, what is an emotional affair? Is that even a real thing? I mean, is that a, does that constitute heart adultery? Because it just feels like, you know, you're blowing this whole thing up. Absolutely, it is heart adultery. Emotional affairs are when you begin to give your heart to someone, your love, your affection to someone in a way who isn't your spouse, but acts as if they are meeting the demands or the needs or the descriptions of what a spouse should meet in your life. And you're seeking from them the things you're to seek from a spouse. And it is on the way to physical adultery. Maybe it gets stopped before it gets to that point. But even when it does, do you know what it does to a family? It destroys and I have watched, I have seen, I know families whose marriages have fallen apart over emotional affairs. Families who have been ripped apart where kids won't speak to parents anymore because of not sexual affairs but emotional affairs. And I have friends in ministry who have lost their jobs in churches because of emotional affairs. And, you know, rightly so. It is hard adultery. And really, I hope you can see this, the problem isn't it isn't, well, we can't figure out which is which and which constitutes what. The problem is the question. The problem is we're seeking some answers about what can I get away with. The problem is we're going, you know, what can I get around the law with so I can have what I want in the moment and gratify an urge or a feeling or a desire within myself? That's the, the problem. Really, when instead the question should be, What's everything that I can do to get the most out of what God has given? What can I do to protect my sexual in integrity and purity? What can I do to promote and protect the marriage covenant? What, what may I do to not rob from these gifts the things that God intended to give, but instead to make sure I experience the deep blessing that God intended by these things? And really, I, <laughs> I've had people ask the questions, and sometimes I just want to go, would you just quit asking me? And please, Please, church, quit asking the bloggers. I know they're geniuses, but, but they don't have the right answers on this either. Instead, I'd encourage you this. Ask Jesus. 
Like actually, not just imagine it. Not, you can't imagine it. I think it'd be a weird conversation. But actually begin to pray and ask him. And I think this is kind of how it really goes if we're being super honest. Jesus, is there any chance you might give me a free pass on this thing that I really want instead of accepting the word that you've already given on the matter? Because I'm not so sure that you gave that word to give life. I know you said you did, and I know I sang that you did, and I know that I told somebody else that everything you said was intended to give life, but in this area, I kind of feel like maybe you are holding me back. Here's the problem. So many people resist this commandment, or they try to find a workaround because they are afraid they're going to miss out on something, some experience in life, or some uh, unmet desire that they have in a moment or in a season in their life. And, and the fact is, the Bible specifically says that the, that the precise reason that God gave sex in marriage is that we would not miss out on the thing that He intends for us to have by it. Not to rob us, but to give to us and to bless us. And so we have a choice. You and I have a choice. Do you get this? You have a choice. Either we believe and we trust that the heart of God in the law of God in the seventh commandment really and truly is human flourishing by his grace for his glory. Or you may choose to roll the dice and work to try to make your own best life. It is a choice that you have to make. And I'm, I'm not here today to try to badger you into something or co coerce you to my way of thinking or to manipulate, manipulate you and say, listen, I'm going to give you the interpretation and you do things the way I say. No, I'm here actually simply to clarify for you that you cannot at the same time say commandments one through three, I'm all about that life and yet hold number seven and say, I'm going to treat this one with a little personal autonomy and I'm going to interpret it and I'm going to treat it in the way that I want to. That's what I'm here to tell you is you can't do that. It's just like um, Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And in the Jewish way of thinking, to hate or to despise in this verse would mean to not choose and to love would mean to choose. And so what I'm telling you is if you choose commandment one, I will bow before one God and it is him and I will have no idols, and I will walk in a life that bears his name not in vain but with integrity and faithfulness, then you have to submit and walk in 4 through 10 in the way that he calls you to. You walk a life of obedience in 4 through 10. But if you choose to have personal autonomy in 4 through 10 and go, I'll interpret these commandments through my lens and decide how should I live them out in my life, then you have already not chosen commandments 1 through 3. Do you see that? You cannot serve God himself, is the point. You have a choice, and you can't have it both ways. <laughs> he is your God. There are no idols. You're his person, and you walk in his ways, or it invalidates the rest. A sin in 4 through 10 is a sin to 1 through 3, okay? Here's how I want to end this morning. And, and I, I learned this from another pastor. I thought this was a really wise, really wise way to end. I want to speak to a couple of different groups of people this morning. And you may find yourself in both groups. You and I may find ourselves in both groups at one time or in the different seasons of our life. I want to speak to the tempted and to the broken. To the tempted, I mean people who feel the draw. You feel the, the draw to diminish 
the picture of marriage that God has designed and we've read about in the scriptures to diminish sex and God's sovereignty and his provision over sex and his actual care and attention to what sex would be in a human relationship, you feel tempted to be drawn away from that and to go your own way. That's the tempted to the broken. It's that experience of knowing we have history and maybe we have regret. Maybe we haven't always walked in, in the way that we should. And maybe that has carried with us or caused us to carry with us some shame or some guilt, which shame and guilt are not the work of God. Remember, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He doesn't shame us to repentance. He, he leads us to repentance through his kindness. Jesus said to the woman, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. I'm welcoming you into life. I'm dignifying you. I'm forgiving you, right? So to the tempted and to the broken, here's the caveat Everything I'm going to share from now until I pray at the end is what God has already spoken in his word. Rather than give you my good advice, because I'm, you know, so wise and knowledgeable on this, and I've got 10 great tips for, for marriage and sex. No, you don't need that from me today. I want you to hear God's word. First to the tempted, to those who are drawn, drawn toward minimizing God's plan for marriage and sex and drawn to sexual sin. 1 Corinthians 10 says, therefore... Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to a man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. You mind if I sit so I can sit with you here on the word of God? I'm going to sit. I'm going to let it speak over my life as well. Lamentations 3, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions, they fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Hebrews 2 says, therefore, he, talking about Jesus here, had to be made like his brethren in all things. You think Jesus didn't have temptation. Well, he was tempted in every way. That means also tempted sexually. He was tempted but never sinned. That he might become merciful. This is the reason why. That he might be a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The answer is to turn to Christ. Do you see that? Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greeds, which amount to the second commandment, right? Hear, believe. Trust the word of God is good and good for you. To the broken, if you have regret, if you have pain, some of, some of if you have secret sin this morning that you hope to God 
that no one will ever find out. And yet at the same time, you go, I just wish somebody knew so they could help me. Hear the word of God. 1 John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 8, 1 and 2, add it again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, talking about the Corinthian church and how they were just rampant with sin. They had, bad, they had a bad resume, okay? Some of us have bad resumes in our past. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. Don't forget that. In Matthew the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. Listen to these words. Blessed. How fortunate. How abundantly good are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hear, believe, and trust the word of God is good and good for you. This morning, right before I came up, we sang a song, and I just wrote down the lyrics real quickly before I walked up. We sang, you're never going to let me go. You are good. You're never going to let me go. You are good. And I think I can hear you singing. Some of you are singing loudly and, and on key, which is also nice. <laughs> I'm not on key, and that's why I'm at the front, because no one behind me can hear. Sometimes we're singing those words as an echo of God's promises that he will never let us go. And he will never let us down. And we're just, we're just echoing back to him his promises. Some of us are singing it because we've experienced it and we're going, yeah, God, you've never let me down and you never will. You are good. And some of us are singing it because we're just dying for it to be true. And we're just, we're trying so hard to believe, God, you'll never let me down. You'll never let me go. You'll never leave me alone. God, I, I hope you're good. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Can I pray with you this morning? Would you bow your heads? Father, we're a made people. You made us to receive to live in and reflect your glory and your goodness, your love and your kindness, your holiness. And just like the story of the first man and woman, 
we have such a propensity to strike out on our own and say, I've got this. And for some reason, it takes a lot of convincing. Sometimes our entire lives to be fully convinced that we don't got this. Because you made us to have relationship with you, covenant with you, to delight in you, to be governed by you, to be provided for by you, to live in response to you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning, would you just help us? And week after week, that's my prayer. You know that, Lord. Would you just help us? Because we need help. We need help in trusting you. We need help in, in believing that your goodness is in fact good and that your word is in fact true and that your grace in fact never quits and that your promises in fact are sure and that the words you gave were there to give life and not take life, not restrict life. That you gave law not to hold us back or to press us down. No, because you desire real human flourishing by your grace for our good and for your glory, and, and that everything that takes us the other way, Jesus said it so succinctly in John 10. He said, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and when we strike out on our own, it is the work of the enemy convincing us so, but you came that we would have life and life abundant. Would you help us believe that this morning? To believe it with our whole head and believe it with our whole heart and believe it with every fiber of our being, and especially this morning as it pertains to our view of marriage and sex. Not only that we would love our neighbor as ourself, but that we would love our God and worship him alone. That we would have no idols. That we would bear your name, not with vain, but rightly with all of its glory and meaning and worth so that our, our relationship to marriage and sex would be a beacon of hope and light in a world that is just covered in chaos and destruction, that even the way we speak and live and think about marriage and sex would draw people in to a covenantal God whose word and relationship is exclusive and permanent for those who turn to him. Help us, please. And may you do a work this morning and this week in our pain, in our regret, in our confusion. Would you help bring healing? For those who turn to you, may they hear the words, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. In spirit, may they know your sweet presence. May you guide them in truth. In the truth of your love. In Jesus' name.